Sometimes people ask how a Buddha comes into the world. Is it some specially chosen person that receives some special transmission from a god or some other being, higher being? Buddha is a human being like ourselves, a human being who in previous life had an aspiration for enlightenment like ourselves, wished for the end of suffering. Aspiration came up over and over again in many lifetimes while still pursuing the path, still not enlightened, still suffering and stressed until the Barami of that person was developed to a point that they could have realized the Dhamma, the Four Noble Truths, and completely liberated their mind from suffering. But meeting a previous Buddha, and recognizing the value to the world of, of a Buddha, one who is self-enlightened and teaches the path to others. Instead of following that Buddha's teachings to the point of realization and becoming an enlightened disciple of that Buddha, they made an aspiration to become a Buddha themselves to increase the length of time you might say that they practice dedicate themselves not only to their own spiritual enlightenment but the enlightenment of others so our Buddha Gautama the Buddha did that in the life of Dipankara, the Buddha, made his aspiration, upheld that aspiration through many, many lifetimes, many obstacles and difficulties, till his final life as Siddhartha Gautama. Perfecting Parami on the thirty, the thirty paramis on the level of ordinary Upaparami and Paramata Parami, becoming a Buddha, 
self-enlightened and no teacher. Penetrating the Four Noble Truths and revealing them, opening up the way for other beings to practice. And then spreading the teachings to those who were had the faith to come forward to listen to, find out. So different from a Pacheka Buddha who's more private, doesn't actually teach Dhamma Vinaya, self-enlightened, but only affects a very small number of beings around them. A Sammarasambuddha, supremely enlightened, establishes the Dhamma Vinaya <coughs> for the benefit of the many folk, other beings, humans, in that lifetime and in subsequent lifetimes right till the present. That's the special thing or nature of a Buddha, self-enlightened but also dedicated to the welfare of others. So it's merging of wisdom and compassion. both intent on his own self-realization, but also intent on helping, saving others. So we're following in the footsteps of the Buddha, as students, disciples of the Buddha, bhikkhus, Anagaricus, lay practitioners, we're following in the Buddha's footsteps. <coughs> that brings us to have an interest in meditation, listening and studying the teachings and then bringing them to practice in our daily lives. The underlying quality that the practice begins with is probably metta, goodwill and compassion, karuna. This is what the, the Buddha teachings, why the Buddha teaches out of compassion for others, why the Sangha came into existence, it's because of the, the metta and the karuna of the Buddha, which has been sustained till this present day. It's also what sustains and nourishes the world as a whole. And the world is nourished or sustained through the power of goodwill, 
That's why we're still able to practice in this day and age. It's because the world, for all its problems, is still stable enough, the society around us is stable enough that we can focus our energy on spiritual practice, even become bhikkhus in this day and age. Although parts of the world are very according to turmoil, poverty, conflict, there are parts of the world that are not. There's enough stability, peace in society that those who are interested can really dedicate and devote themselves to spiritual practice. That's our good fortune. So it's metta that underlies the Buddhist practice from the mind of the Buddha and from all those who are practicing the teachings. It's the first precept that we follow to not kill, to not follow violent or aggressive ways. So the underlying principle of a monastery is one of peace, goodwill, non-violence. A bhikkhu or a samana is one who practices non-violence, non-abuse of others, even animals. And we encourage that in others through example and through teaching. So those who come to monasteries are receiving the fruits of that metta beginning with the Buddha and then through the living Sangha. And they're encouraged to take that back to their families and workplaces and society. So the monastery has that effect on the world in smaller or greater ways. For those who've been associated with Buddhist teachings for many years, or you might say many lifetimes. This point is fairly easily understood. It's very natural to Buddhists to practice goodwill. So it leads naturally on to the practice of dana. Buddhists everywhere understand the value of generosity charity of different kinds, not just in the more universally understood way of helping the sick, the poor, the needy, but also dana supporting sangha, the value of supporting monasteries, sangha, with arms, requisites and so on. Building on that, the Buddhist path. Takes us to the practice of sila, morality, using moral precepts as guidelines. Where we can take our higher ideals and principles of purity and peace 
well-being that we wish for in ourselves and others, we actually put it into practice by using precepts as guidelines. Five precepts, eight precepts, 227 that we hear today on Patimokha Day. Using them as skillful rules to train our body, speech and mind on a daily basis. And for a bhikkhu, the heart of that, we call it the brahmacharya, the holy life, the celibate life. And that's a reflection we have to keep coming back to. It's another aspect of the samana life, not only being non-violent and being honest, being celibate. This is something that is quite rare in the world and quite challenging for human beings to practice because we're, by nature, we're still mammals, we're still human beings, we're animals with reproductive organs and instincts and the quality ragadanha desire and lust is very deeply ingrained in the human consciousness and in our conditioning. The brahmacharya is directly looking at that, working with that and ultimately leading us to abandon, understanding it through understanding the process where raga dana arises through avicca, ignorance conditioning, craving, attachment, becoming. But establishing mindfulness, wisdom to interrupt that process and ultimately abandon it. But because it's such deeply rooted in our character, in our conditioning as human beings, it's our greatest challenge the way the Buddha, out of his compassion and wisdom, advised us or encouraged us to practice was first of all to establish sila. So we take on the, the rules of training of a Buddhist monk. Even if internally we still have craving and attachment affecting us, we take on the rules to subdue its external manifestations, its more extreme manifestations in our behavior. So when we come into the monastery, we're starting to subdue, compose ourselves, subdue some of the old habits we might have had. We start to realize maybe how all-embracing and how deeply quality of Ragadanha affects human beings. It's not simply sexual desire or sensuality, but it pretty much conditions human behavior in so many or all areas of our society. The way we look and dress and act and speak, the way we earn our living and relate to others, the way we attach to power 
and influence and wealth, as well as just the more obvious pleasures of the senses. So as a bhikkhu we're stepping away from that, detaching ourselves from that conditioning process. It's a big step, so it requires a lot of patient effort and contemplation to understand what we're doing and why and to understand how we're affected by the conditioning process. So that leads on to the, the deepening of our practice, having taken on the precepts of a bhikkhu, then we dedicate ourselves to the development of mindfulness and wisdom through contemplating the Dhamma. And although we have many books and teachings, we have a whole tripitaka, many, many volumes of teachings. It's our good fortune they've been preserved over the centuries since the time of the Buddha. And we have commentaries and we have all the teachings of our forest masters, especially in the modern era, era from Ajahn Mahabur and so on. We have a whole library of books and talks but at the same time it can sometimes see quite, seem quite complicated and complex all those different teachings and depending on people's character some like to study and research and compare and learn others prefer to just learn a little bit and then quickly put it into practice and try to learn from direct experience. And even those who learn and study a lot eventually have to come to that point. But we have different pathways, different characters. But sometimes we just have to look at what's happening right now, day by day, moment by moment. Really look at our own mind. Ajahn Chah used to say, where suffering arises is where the end of suffering also can arise. Or in a more obvious way, where there's dirt, you look for cleanliness right there. Cleanliness can rise out of dirt in the same place and talk about the sala or the meditation hall. If it's dirty, the thing to do is clean it up right there. Not to theorize or walk around thinking about it, but you just do it and that's the end of it. Meaning that if we have craving and attachment arise in the mind and you recognize that, that's where you practice right there and then is where you'll find liberation. Suffering and the end of suffering are right close to each other. We don't have to go a long way away. We can see it and do it right there and then. 
So a lot of our practice is about that, about establishing enough mindfulness, presence of mind, to recognize and see craving and attachment as it's arising, rather than following it through ignorance and conditioning. But establishing mindfulness insight to recognize, say, this is craving, this is the cause of my suffering, and then abandon it and to keep doing it. So the other teaching Ajahn Chah used to emphasize is just the practice of patience, forbearance, resilience, by keeping applying the method to your own mind, to your own practice on a daily basis. Craving arises, see it, we abandon it. Attachments come up, we see them, we abandon them. Over and over again. It's being willing to keep doing that is where liberation springs from. Having enough patience, enough effort, giving it the time, giving yourself the time to keep applying that teaching, that we can find results. Of course, as we do that, then even more subtle kinds of craving and attachment might arise. I mean, just the wanting of the end of suffering can become another form of craving. The wanting of the end of craving is another form of craving. It leads to another kind of suffering. So we constantly have to keep being vigilant and reviewing our own mind as we practice. The attitudes that underlie our practice, our attitude towards practice. As we meditate, how do we approach our own meditation? As we contemplate, how do we approach it? With mindfulness and true insight, or are we still practicing with craving? As if craving is still the motivating force, well of course our practice will actually go around in circles, creating more suffering, taking us further away from the very thing we want, which is liberation. So everything comes back to looking after the mind, training, using the, the lifestyle, and the precepts, the mindfulness practice, the peaceful environment, and the reflections and contemplations that we hear and remind ourselves of every day. Just keep applying them, using them and giving ourselves time for the mind to understand better. It's not something we can force. On the other hand, we also don't have to be 
at a loose end or lost what we have to do next because the mind is constantly bringing up what we have to do next it's always craving an attachment coming up around the next corner so there's always something more to do we don't have to go very far or wait very long there's always something to let go of something to see and know something to let go of every day our mind brings us different moods every day we come back to similar experiences that we've had before we might come back to lustful desire or anger and irritation or anxiety or depression or dullness or doubt and after a while if you keep practicing you do get familiar with your own states of mind and that's where liberation can come from you start to know things as they are you know a hindrance or kilesa as a kilesa even if you cannot abandon it yet you can at least recognize it for what it is so it's not so overwhelming and we can also get more skillful at bringing up wise reflection to deal with them and keep being willing to investigate our own body and mind as it is, as it presents itself day by day in the present moment and being very honest with ourselves recognizing that you know, the limitations of craving and attachment craving leads to suffering, attachment leads to suffering so you're attached to ideas about yourself based on craving attachment you suffer recognizing this process of cause and result or we say the conditioning process we want to feel a certain way or be a certain way or be a certain kind of person or a certain kind of bhikkhu if that's coming from craving attachment it's going to be bound up with suffering We want to feel good, feel healthy, feel strong, feel young, be young, look young. But our body is aging and changing and sometimes it's ill and sometimes we get cold and hot, tired. As long as we identify with this body and this sense of self, with attachment, we'll suffer, we'll be disappointed. It's often very basic, very obvious kinds of attachments that come up is where we can really liberate ourselves by just stepping back and looking at our own mind and see what it's doing, see how we're causing ourselves more suffering by clinging on, not recognizing it, just blindly clinging on. But now we're stepping back, we can see this is suffering. You're willing to let go accept the way things are much more being more at peace with yourself with the conditions of your own mind the conditions of the world around us we don't actually have to go and 
get anything special from anybody. This is the way the Buddha practiced. He practiced by observing and learning from his own body and mind, his own experience, by applying mindfulness and wisdom to it until he knew the way things are. So we don't have to go off and seek some special transfer of knowledge or transmission or try and attain some special state some point in the future or some place else it's more about willing to face up and look to the way our minds are right now and developing enough clarity and stability to recognize what is going on if we keep desiring and attaching then we're going to keep suffering if we keep letting go of desire and attachment the mind will keep inclining towards Dhamma and the peace of understanding the way things are if you keep training in that practicing with that you get to the point where you understand with confidence this is the way it is the body is just the body Feelings are feelings, thoughts are thoughts. Desires and attachments are just desires and attachments. But we don't have to identify with any of it. And we're coming up to the Vasa time, so it's a good time just to reflect on how you might use your three months retreat time wisely and to your best advantage we have the opportunity to take on certain practices you know, how we eat how we sleep how we spend our time sitting walking learning chants learning dhamma how we might use that time this is a good week or two we just plan what we might want to do. We can consider how we want to use our requisites, maybe to increase our the simplicity of our life, be frugal with the use of requisites, develop our own personal routine. You can even write it down how you're going to spend your days in the Vasa with how you're going to, what time you're going to get up, what time you go to sleep, how much you're going to rest, how much sitting, how much walking. With practices like eating or using the bowl, maybe just take on the practice just to eat the food in your bowl, not to take any extra plates or cups of food. How much food? We all could probably be more careful with how much food we take in the, the meal time so that we only eat what we really need and only take what we need and then not have any left over or maybe just one or two mouthfuls of rice left over rather than half a bowl full of food which just gets thrown away. Might take on a determination, make a determination that you'll eat everything that you put into your bowl 
So then you become very careful not to take too much. Like the Zen monks in their monastery, they eat everything and then rinse the bowl out and actually drink the final few grains of rice down. So there's absolutely nothing left. If you take too much food, you can't do that. Or how much you're going to take in terms of drinks, or coffee, or chocolate, or the, the various medicines we have in the evening, how much you want to take. So you use it as a real time to study and learn what you need. Nobody's forcing us to, to starve or struggle, but you can take it as a time of self-research to understand how much food, how much drink you need. What supports good meditation? Sometimes cutting back a little bit can bring up more effort, more clarity, more determination. How much sleep we need? Whether we're going to sleep in the day, rest in the day, how much we're going to sleep at night? How we're going to sleep? People take on practices like to just sleep until you wake up and then you get up and carry on practicing. So if you're tired, you'll probably sleep longer. But when you wake up, that's usually a sign that you, you're no longer so tired, otherwise you'd still be sleeping. So once you wake up, in whatever the time it is, whether it's 2 a.m. or 4 a.m., 5 a.m., once you wake up, you get up and practice. Or some monks take on just to sleep in one posture, the lion posture, they lie on their right hand side with their head on their hand or on the pillow. And that's it, they just stay in that one posture. If it's no longer comfortable in that posture, then that's a sign you've had enough rest and you get up and practice. Or on these full moons and new moons, we can practice nesajik. sitting or standing or walking but not lying down for one night. Maybe take that on for the whole panza. For three months, every full moon, half moon, not to lie down, so once a week. Take on practices about talking, how much we're going to talk, whether we might limit our conversations to just monks and avoid lay people. Maybe tell our families that we're on retreat so we won't be contacting them for a few months unless it's an emergency. Or even limit our conversation with fellow bhikkhus. We might limit time, the amount of conversation, or limit the subject. See if you can practice just talking about Dhamma if we can't talk about Dhamma, then we don't talk. We might have certain speech habits that we want to improve on. So we might take on a practice not to complain about anything. The weather, the people, the place, the whatever. Or not to talk about anything outside the monastery. So not to talk about the news of the world or 
social things and family matters and so on. There's endless variations, but it's up to us to use the retreat time to think what might be helpful for our own practice, our own character, where we might increase our effort. Sitting longer, if we can sit for an hour without getting up, and maybe push to sit for two hours without getting up. If we can walk meditation for an hour, and then to practice walking for two hours without stopping, without leaving the walking path. Or how many hours per day we want to meditate, sitting, walking. When I was a young monk, we used to have a rule, minimum eight hours a day. We used to joke that we're all working an eight-hour day, so that's our minimum. Sometimes five hours sitting, three hours walking, four hours walking, four hours sitting, whatever. Then some monks would move on, say 12 hours a day, 16 hours a day, 18 hours a day. Depends how you define it. Some monks can meditate through their meals, so that counts as part of their meditation. We can be very clear and precise if we want, set up some kind of routine, write it down and try and stick to it. If we need the cooperation of the Sangha, we can explain it, come and talk to me and I can help explain to everyone what someone's practice is so that we can support them. Other monks are more worldly, more sensual. They might have a one bar of soap for the whole three months practice. Just use enough soap just to keep your body from smelling too bad. Give up all other shampoos and liquid soaps and deodorants and all the other things people can use. Some monks take on a practice not to read anything for three months. Or if they read, just read Dhamma. Or if they read, just to read for half an hour a day or one hour a day. Some people take on the practice not to use the telephone, <clears throat> not to write a letter explain to their friends and family first so that everyone knows what's going on. Some people take on not to leave the monastery, not to visit anyone. These, this is a time, we've got a few weeks left, just to think if there's any particular practice you might want to do that would be helpful. Let's look at the way, the attitude behind it. And the Buddha said any special practice you take on, whether it's one of the 13 Tutongas or some variation, it's important to know your, your reason for it. We don't do it to increase our ditti and mana, our attachment to views and opinions about the practice and our sense of conceit. So we're not doing it to be better than others or show off or to impress others, impress the lay people. 
we're doing it out of a sense of honesty, trying to research, understand ourselves better, to expose our own craving and attachment to actually help us to let it go, abandon it. So everyone has their own style, there's room for variation. We should all be aware, time is running out for all of us, we're all getting older. The world is spinning on, society is very uncertain how long we Buddhist monks will be able to practice in this society, who knows? So we should really take our chance while we have it. Who knows how many lifetimes we've been waiting for this chance. Maybe in a previous lifetime we were a lay person wishing to ordain but far too burdened with family and work and other things. Now we have the chance, we should take it. If we don't take it, maybe later we'll regret it. When you're a young monk, you don't have much responsibility. You don't have to really teach or run things very much. You use your time to really further your understanding of your own mind through the practice. Use the seclusion, the time to really develop mindfulness, insight, learn the Dhamma and put it into practice. Physically it won't get easier the older you get. Mentally maybe the older you get the more other things you have to think about. Even in a monastery you might have to take on responsibility. So really enjoy your freedom as a Nawaka Bhikkhu or a Majjhima Bhikkhu. Use it. Use your time skillfully. So I wish you all well in your practice. May you all come to realize the Dhamma and leave the talk here.